need to feed my spirit. I was once looking. You are a spectre from the gods. Walk with me. All right, you're listening to Wait, You Are Mormon with Devin Brown. I'm your host, Devin Brown. And for episode 11, we've got the lovely Bryce Prescott. He's very authentic, and he opens up about his mission to Brazil, how he met his first wife and got married six weeks after coming home. He talks about his excommunication and how he was actually rebaptized, and what eventually led him to finding some solace outside of the church. Um, so again, I hope you guys are enjoying what you hear. Please tell a friend, subscribe, leave a review or a comment on Apple. I read everything and it really does help me improve because I want to give you guys the best product. Also, I've uh, set up a website, as some of you may have seen. It's www.waityouwermormon.com. All one word, no ellipses. Um, so check it out and uh, you'll be able to find all the social media links and episodes and everything you might want there. All right, guys, enjoy. So uh, we can just jump right into it. Um, okay. So will you introduce you your, yeah? Will you introduce yourself and tell us a little about your background? Sure. Uh, what specifically do you want to know about my background? Um, were you a convert? Were you born and raised in the church? Oh, so uh, relative to the church stuff. Yeah, and then just whatever you want to tell us, uh, whatever you want to do, okay. anything you want to plug. Sure. Um, so my name is Bryce Prescott. I was uh, born to active parents in the church. I was uh, baptized when I was eight years old, uh, active throughout my entire childhood. I was uh, a vanilla kid, man. I didn't do anything wrong or out of line until later in life. Uh, I went on my mission. Uh, actually that, that, that was kind of the first little stuff that I had happen. I, I had a girlfriend about the time that we went on my mission and, uh, we pushed some of the boundaries a little mm. bit too much, but I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't fix it before I went into the MTC. So I went, I went to the MTC, had that burden kind of lingering on me and then cracked about six weeks in and they sent me home. And, and then I went back, um, about 10 months later, uh, to, you know, the same mission and everything. The mission that I served was in Porto Alegre South in Brazil. Okay. Uh, geographically speaking, uh, at the time it was the southernmost mission in Brazil. It bordered Argentina and Uruguay on the south. And uh, it was just, you know, in the state of Rio Grande do Sul, which is the southernmost state. It's like the Texas of Brazil. It's like mm -hmm. cattle ranchers and cowboys and stuff. Okay. Uh, but before I got there, I served uh, for five months in uh, Boston. Wow. I had issues getting my visa. And so I was in Boston and that was an interesting experience because I didn't, I wasn't prepared to go to Boston as far as like being stateside as a missionary. Mm -hmm. And I had to adapt to that, obviously. I had a lot of concerns about losing my Portuguese because I, you know, only had it for two months in the MTC. Mm -hmm. Additionally, um, just the, the mission president that was in Boston was very, very strict. I mean, he was a hardline business guy, like, you know, black and white were the rules. If you're in the gray, you're in the right, you're in the wrong. Like, I mean, very, very strict. And, uh, I actually, I was in leadership almost immediately. Like I was six weeks out and they asked me to train. <laughs> so yeah. it was nuts. Like, so I did that. And then, uh, you know, I was there for five months, took a long time, ended up the, the it was a whirlwind to get to Brazil. Like it was a phone call two days before I was on a plane, having to pack everything up. I was in the, the Worcester area at the time in Massachusetts, which is about an hour and a half outside of Boston. So I had to get back into Boston and it was middle of winter and then I go into Brazil and it's the middle of summer and you know, you go from like chicks and parkas and shit and then you go to Brazil and they're all naked and you're like, uh, that's an adjustment, you know? And then plus the weather and, and, uh, the mission, the, the, the mission in Brazil was an entirely different world in that it was, I mean, in, in this was back in, I mean, I'm old, I'm 45 years old. So this was, you know, in, was it 1994, mm -hmm. 1995? Yeah, it was 95 is when I was there. And uh, so, you know, in the United States mission in Boston, every night we'd have to call our zone leaders. There was, you know, a lot of accountability using, you know, just, you know, phone and, and connection there. In Brazil, 
there would be areas where I wouldn't see another, you know, companionship for two weeks, you know, so you're literally without a phone, without communication. I mean, it's letters and stuff, telegraphs and things would be said, you know, you to the bus station, it was, you were on your own. And so it was an adjustment for sure. Um, I actually ended up meeting, uh, the woman who ended up being my first wife, uh, as she was a sister missionary in Brazil. Oh, wow. And so that was an interesting dynamic as part of that as well, because I was having these feelings for a person like they were wrong to be having, or supposedly they were wrong. She ends up going home. Uh, you know, she finished out her mission of a year and a half and then she goes home. We start writing. We ended up getting engaged while I'm still on my mission. We ended up getting married six weeks after I got home, bro. It was the dumbest wow. move ever. Like it was such a stupid play. Like, it's missionaries you're following your like when you get back from a mission you're following your dick around like you just anything to get laid like i was i made so many decisions it was the worst relationship of my entire life but you were probably I have two priest, wonderful right? kids from it but that's the only benefit that came out of that relationship and uh yeah it's um so that's that's kind of the background with that mm-hmm. i've uh, since then you know I, I did end up going to byu um and I, I, I worked in the ski industry for a while. I got into mortgages for a while. I ran a successful real estate company for a while. Um, and what I've been doing for the last five or six years has been a combination of podcast consulting and production. Like I own a little company that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, produces people's podcasts, helps them market, make sure that their podcasts are, you know, created for the right listener and mm-hmm. intended. As well as I've done some business consulting where I'll come in and sit in with businesses and help them to get more, more of whatever they want to get. Mm-hmm. So, um, I got excommunicated when I got divorced. At that time, it was still a, a big deal to me as far as the church. And I ended up going through the process to get rebaptized. And I was rebaptized. And then I was, uh, I got my blessings restored about a year and a half after that. But um, it sounds like you were a super effective missionary, though. Like you're called to train at six weeks, you're getting engaged before you even leave. Like you, <laughs> you're probably, like you're probably getting a lot of praises from everybody, right? Like Elder Prescott's a spiritual giant oh my goodness uh, i don't i don't know about that i mean i i kind of think if i'm honest i kind of wanted that mm-hmm. i don't think i got that i think i wanted that I, if i'm being real there's a part of me that did aspire to mm-hmm. accolades in the miss in the mission like leadership and like i wanted to be an ap i never was mm-hmm. an ap like for me it, it, it for whatever reason in the the hierarchy of how things work in that world that you know in, in, an, in an odd insecure way it, you know that would validate you know yeah. what I was doing, which is bullshit. It doesn't. Uh, yeah. Sorry, is it okay if I use grown-up words on this? We good? Yeah, we're we're adults, so that's fine okay. with me. Um, there's an explicit okay. tag on the podcast, just in case. You know. Yeah. Um, did you have the uh, Did you have the shaved head back then? Because it looks very no, authoritative. No, I, had a, I had a luscious head of hair. It was uh, glorious, and yeah. it went away very quickly in my mid twenties, unfortunately. So. Same, same, same. I'm wearing the beanie right now, but even on the mish, my hairline started running away from me. But uh, yeah. I think the shaved head's a good look. You know. And then there's a lot yeah. of power to it because if people make fun of you, you can like curse them and have them killed by bears. Like it's in the true. Bible. I mean, me and Superman, we're and even though we're arch enemies, like we're you know mm-hmm. at least we play a role. Yeah, and you get all the course. you get all the money and the gadgets, so yeah, <laughs> that's not too bad. Um, but yeah, that's very interesting. Like, what were kind of some of your first impressions of Brazil? I still to this day have a love affair with that country. Mm-hmm. I love Brazil. I've, I've had the privilege of going back a few times for business after the fact and going back as a civilian, just it reiterated to me what my initial thoughts were. I love the people, the, the Brazilian people are a passionate people. They love good music. They love good food. They're sexual. They're just really like, they're just really energetic. Mm-hmm. Like they're just really like, Hey, like this is just passionate, you know? And I just, I've, I vibe with those type of people. Like they're, they're cool to me. So they're almost Italian. Brazilians almost yeah I mean there's a there's a there's a you know Portuguese is a Latin based language Mm -hmm. so there's some sort of connection I'm sure to that you know um and and it's a beautiful it's beautiful physically beautiful country you know we were in some of the poorest areas I think on planet earth and some of the stuff that I did and it was still gorgeous you know with rolling hills and beautiful vistas Mm -hmm. and things and I've always thought that you know there's something about you know Brazil's government's pretty messed up it borderlines between, you know, communism and socialism. And mm. it's, it's very, very corrupt. Yeah. There's a lot, I mean, I don't know if you followed any of the politics there, but in the last five years, they ousted their president because she had basically ripped off the country to the tune of close to a billion dollars oh, wow. and given it to a bunch of her crony friends. And they put in this new person that was more, you know, business oriented. And, 
And I've always thought that with the, with the pure amount of raw natural resource that Brazil has, there's no way that they shouldn't be a world superpower. It's mm. strictly because of who's running that country. Cause they have, I mean, they have way more natural resource than the United States. I mean, the Amazon is majority in Brazil. Like oh, yeah. that alone should be able to rule the world, you know, but mm. love that country still do. I, I have a, a fun memory where there's, there's some, uh, I love the music as well. That kind of like bossa Nova, like oh, yeah, Antonio yeah. Carlos Jombin. Last time I was there on business, I was staying in Sao Paulo and uh, it was late in the evening and I just put on in my headphones and I'm a tall person. Like I'm six two, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not some wafy guy. So like I'm, I'm, and I still speak really good Portuguese so I could, you know, I can hold my own yeah. in the country without it being a thing. And uh, I was just walking down the street late at night, listening to some Brazilian music in my headphones, just soaking in the energy mm -hmm. of the city. It was just like, it's, it was one of those kind of raw memories that I just really thankful for and i would never would have had that had i not gone to on a mission there so oh, yeah. even though i'm not a part of the church anymore and look at things differently like i'm really glad that i still have those memories of you know that country yeah absolutely like i always tell people um you know it's not an anti-mormon podcast in any way um sure. but you know some of the negative things were were valid and you know there's some traumas there and you know i think it's fair to to be able to talk about those things but yeah the sure. mission could you know there are a lot of really fun and, and high points there um, I didn't get to learn a language. I really wanted to, though. Um, Ghana, it's surrounded by all these French-speaking countries. Yeah. And I, I had a, on my passport, it, there was a stamp for Cote d'Ivoire. So I was like, oh, man, I might have to go to Cote d'Ivoire at some point. I might learn French. And not just English the whole time. <laughs> but uh, Portuguese, were you able to transfer that into, like, any Spanish at all? or? Yeah. Yeah, actually. For, so for a period of my career... I was, uh, I was working in the international commodities space. Mm. And so I, I lived actually for an extended period of time in Port in Buenos Aires. Oh yeah. And being in, uh, in Argentina, it's, it's kind of funny. There's this weird, dumb rivalry between Argentinians and Brazilians. Like they hate each other. It's usually because of soccer. Like they, mm. they just hate each other for, for no reason when they're pretty much exactly the same type of people is if it was an outsider. And I had, I had, you know, one of the things that this isn't me, you know, bragging on myself. This is, this is a relevant point to the story. I, I speak really good Portuguese. My, my Portuguese, you don't, I don't sound American. Like mm -hmm. I sound like I'm a Brazilian. So, so in my head, when I was learning Spanish, I was translating the Portuguese into Spanish and then speaking it. So it's like English, Portuguese, Spanish to get it out. Right. There were more times than I can count where I'd go to like the local bodega or whatever to buy, you know, bananas and milk or something. And they would ask me if I was Brazilian because my Spanish sounded like yeah. it was from Brazil. <laughs> and they are a little, a lot of them are a little more fair skinned too. Right. Like in Argentina, in Argentina? And, uh, and, and, and sometimes in Brazil, right? There's some pretty white. Yeah. In the South, right? in the South, like the, so a little bit of the history about the mission where I was in, in Porto Alegre South, it's the state called, uh, Rio Grande do Sul. It's, uh, there's a lot of German influence there after world war two, mm, yeah. a lot of Germans moved and, and it's kind of funny too, because, and this was always a joke in our mission. So like, if you look at a map of, of Southern Brazil, like you have all these cities that are, have like Catholic names, like Santa Maria or San Gabriel, or like, you know, the cross of the South, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have like other cities that are called like waterfall or, you know, just something normal. And when you would go to those cities, the Catholic sounding cities were old Brazilian cities. They'd been there for hundreds of years. They were dog shit as far as like how they were constructed. They were confused to find their ways around. There was no real, like they had a city square and like it was so hard to find anything. You go to the other normal cities and they were, they were young cities, less than 50 years old from when, you know, Germans had, had, had colonized them and they were all perfectly organized. Like you could find a way around everything. It was a grid system. It was super easy. It's like, ah, the Germans kind of knew what they were doing here. This was happenstance in these other cities. But yeah, it's a uh, beautiful people too. Like there was a, like a German, a German Brazilian mix is like fair skin with like, with like, uh, well, olive skin with like red hair and green eyes. Like, mm. whew, it's just so beautiful yeah, wow. and tall, you know, they got the Brazilian butts and then the gorgeous features. It's, they make a good, they make a hot chick. <laughs> uh, so some of your companions, uh, did that ever cause some contention? Cause I know you might, maybe you go to the mall and they have advertising that might be a little provocative, you know, it's a very sexual country, like you're saying. And, you know, depending on not, not really. I mean, that was that was kind of one of those like you know forward facing. You had to pretend like you were immune to that. But when mm. you're with your like when you actually have like a good friendship with a companion, to be like, dude, that's whew, are you serious? Like, you'd acknowledge it, you know. Um, 
and when you when I was with American companions, it was always that way. It's mm -hmm. like you know, because that was another thing that was a challenge for our uh, mission specifically is that, you know, Brazilians um, automatically find an American more attractive for whatever, like the yeah. light colored eyes usually, and they think that all Americans are rich. And so like, they just have this, this misunderstanding about who we are. And so like, they would do that, like the snake thing to hit on you and to get you to talk. And I mean, it was, it was constant. It was. Mm. Yeah. Same in uh, Ghana. Like yeah. I was considered white the entire time I was in Ghana. So like little kids would cry when they saw me or just any white person, you know, I got called just Chinese. Jesus. Yeah. I get called Chinese <laughs> and stuff all the time. Um, but the women were really into me and it was almost like a weekly occurrence. Someone was like trying to like get me to impregnate them. Isn't that a weird thing to like have that time of your life when you're most virile, you're most horny basically. And mm. then like, you're supposed to say no to yep. everything as a missionary. Like what the hell? <laughs> yeah. I have thought about that since being home. I was like, man, I could really clean up if I, if I went back, but right. Yeah, absolutely. So that is uh so overall your mission experience was pretty positive. It was okay. The, the, the funniest experience was also the most pathetic and saddest experience that I had on my mission. And I'll just share that story with you real quick. So in Brazil, uh, they have this, this religion. It's a, it's, it's a variant of voodoo mm. and they would do this ritual where they would like sacrifice like a live chicken and they have this thing. And then they'd have like these, these people that were considered conduits and those conduits would allow like spirits to enter their body and then they would tell the future. Mm -hmm. So it's like the most ineffective version of like a, a crystal ball. Like, and plus they had this theory that like in order for you to, in order for your own spirit to set aside enough to let another spirit in, you had to be so demeaned that you wanted to die. Mm -hmm. So they would take these individuals and they would put them through such horrific things. They'd beat them, they'd sexually assault them, they'd rape them, they would, I mean, all this stuff. And then when the person was just so like um, denigrated, they would then say, you know, allow, they do this prayer and allow the spirit to enter in. Right. Well, I had a companion that had been doing, had been one of those conduits since he was like 14 and he was in his mid twenties as my missionary, is my mission companion. He found the, the missionaries in his own part of Brazil when he was 22. And he was a, he was a full out of the closet homosexual. Like he was gay. And so he had a boyfriend, he had this whole thing, he was getting, you know, raped by these groups and it was all like just this horribly abusive life, right? Well, he meets the elders and uh, here's the discussions and, you know, according to his story, and I don't know how much this has changed over the years, because like I said, it was, you know, over 25 years ago, but he said, you know, he felt the spirit and it was, you know, he, he felt like it was, he needed to become baptized and he needed to become a part of the church and everything. And when he was going through his interviews, he was like confessing all the stuff that he'd been a part of. And it was like the first district leader that had to in <laughs> interview him for this baptism was just like, what the, what? Like just out so much stuff. Right. Anyway, long story short, they involve the, you know, everybody, he ends up getting baptized. He wants to go on a mission. Well, they have to involve the quorum of the 12 and the 70 in the decision to let this guy go on a mission because his past. Now, again, at this point, he says that he's a reformed gay person. He's not gay anymore because mm -hmm. um, he's, he's a Mormon now. You know, mm -hmm. he's a Mormon. He wants to do this. He's, not, he, he's saying, and he's like, the gay is bad. It was a part, I gave into my basis instincts. He's like, he's like pushing that part of his, his you know, identity away. Well, he's in our mission. And I, I don't learn any of this until after the fact, right? So he's in our mission. His name was Elder Silva. And I can say his name because there's a million Silvas. That's like saying Smith in the mm -hmm. United States. Like Silva is a normal name for Brazil. My mission president, when I get called to be his companion, he calls me and he goes, Hey, Elder Prescott, I need you to, uh, excited to be with Elder Silva. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. It's cool. He's just a new companion. We're going to do what we do. Okay. Well, I just need you to, if you see anything that's out of the ordinary, I just need you to let me know. And I go, I don't know what that means. He's like, you don't need to know what that means. Just keep an eye out. If there's anything out of the ordinary, just let me know. And I go, what? Okay. So we were in a small town where there was myself and him and then another elder and a, another companionship was on the other side of town. And on Wednesday evenings, which was our preparation day, we would swap, like we would swap companions, you know, do exchanges or whatever they're called. We call them splits back then. Yep. Well, so that means, and that would start at six o'clock. So, you know, five o'clock-ish, we'd have to be done with our stuff and we just have to start getting ready to be able to go out and proselyte again. Well, this specific Wednesday night, I go take a shower. 
I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the shower, I'm cleaning up, whatever I get out. And the other two companion, the other two elders are there with my companion. And there's an clearly had been an incident. There was something that had gone on. Mm. And I'm like, what's up guys. And they're like, they're like acting weird to me. My companion won't talk to me. Like it's a weird thing. I'm like, what, I don't know what's going on guys. Like we're going to do this. And like, they wouldn't talk. So when we do the exchange and my, my companion at that time, I was switched into this, the, to be with this American kid that's from Idaho. And I'm like, yeah, that was kind of weird, huh? And he's like, yeah, that was, yeah. That's eh, no big deal though. I'm like, and he, it sounds like he doesn't want to talk about it. I'm like, are you going to tell me what actually happened or not? He's like, I can't tell you, man. Don't worry about it. Just, just don't worry about it. It's nothing for you to worry about. So I go, okay, well then, um, a week, about a week later, I get woken up in the middle of the night by my companion. He's like screaming, like like night terrors type thing. Mm. And he's accusing me. He's like, you're doing it again. You're doing it again. Like he's yelling at me, you're doing it again. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. And he accused me of like masturbating in my bed in the middle of the night. He's like, you're jerking off. I see it. you're jerking off. Like that's gross. Like, what are you doing? You're jerking off. I'm like, I'm not jerking off, dude. What are you talking about? And so the next day was a Wednesday and we we're supposed to do exchanges again. And so the exchanges come. And my companion's acting like a psycho. I'm like, this guy's weird. And on top of that, we would be in discussions and he would be talking about Holy Mother and things. Like he just would bring up the worst things to be mm -hmm. talking about and when you're trying to talk to people about, you know, the discussions of Jesus and Joseph Smith and shit. So I'm just out of my head a little bit. And I go to my, I go to the, the guy, I'm with the, the Idaho elder again. And I'm like, I'm telling this. And he's like, he's like, bro, I gotta, I gotta come clean with you, man. I go, what's up? He's like, your companion's weird. I'm like, I know. He's like, no, like, Last week, we caught him jerking off watching you in the shower. Like the way that our house was set up is like it was on an upper level and there was like these stairs that went up to the side and there was those like three level sort of tiered like window, you know, things and the window was open and they walk up to the top and it looks straight down the hallway to the front door and all the bedroom like doors are on the right as you're looking there and he's like, he's got the door peeked open. He's just sitting there giving himself a tug watching me they sit there and look to see, to make sure it's what they see. And then they slam the window down. He comes to the door and says, I know you guys saw what you saw. If you tell brother Prescott, I'm going to kill myself. Like I will legitimately kill myself. You can't tell him anything like this is bad news. Like he just freaks out on him. And that's what I walked into yeah. with them saying like, Hey, what's up? And they're like, eh, nothing. Right. So like I'm, and I tell the elder about the, the night terrors thing where he accused me of, you know, jerking off. And I'm like, Phew. so it, I was the district leader of, the, of that little group and our zone leader was an hour away in a different city. And so I'm like, I, I tell this Idaho guy, I'm like, I can't go back to that right now. Like this is, I'm, I'm freaking out. So like I lied to the Brazilian guy to my companion, elder Silva. I go, ah, I got this telegram and I didn't show him from the zone leaders. I got to go to the, it was in the city's name was Rosario. I got to go to Rosario tonight. I, you're gonna have to stay here with the other elders and I'll be back. You know, and so I leave, I go to that other place. And my zone leader was this like, dude, this really rich kid with a smart ass attitude. And he, I told him what happened. He's like, ha ha, Elder Prescott, you're so hot that the boys want to screw you in Brazil. Ha ha ha. Like he's making fun of me. Mm. Right. So anyway, we get on, I get on the phone, I call president and uh, tell him what's up. And he's like, Hey, well, he's like, well, you can't like, you can't just be done now. Like we've got to, we've got to still handle this. So you're gonna have to go back. And we had a zone conference that was in a week and a half and there was a transfer at that time. And he's like, you're just going to have to deal with it until then. And we'll figure it out then. And I'm like, wow. So I go back and everything. And I ended up about a weekend. He starts acting to me and I, I threatened to beat his ass. Cause I'm like, dude, I know what you do. I know what you've been doing and it's not cool. Like it's affecting everything here. Knock it off. Like, and if you do, I'm going to freaking beat you up. And he's like, really? Like he thought I was like coming onto him by threatening violence against him. Anyway. So the, the, um, uh, the, uh, um, I, but I, <laughs> I told him the spirit told me that that's what had happened. <laughs> so I asked that, like, he ended up getting transferred and stuff. And I asked the president, I'm like, why don't you send that kid home, dude? Like, really? He's like, you got to understand something. He's like, if we send that kid home, he's done. He's done. He's going back to a life where he was sexually abused and assaulted. Like he, the best places for him to be. And if we got to deal with stuff like this, like that's minuscule in the bigger picture of this guy's soul. And I'm like, Okay, I'll accept that. But so that, was, that was a fun one. How long were your showers, man? It seems like you're taking really long showers. That might be on you. Well, <laughs> long enough to get him off, I guess. But 
You're taking these 40 <laughs> minute showers, man. What do you what do you expect? No, that's the thing is it's impossible in Brazil to take long showers. Like they ha- they don't even have like pressurized running water. They have this like mm-hmm. little disc that runs through this thing and it's like barely warm. So like maybe four minutes max, you know. Same Ghana, except it wasn't even warm. It was frigid cold. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, you were young. You, of course, you love and respect the LGBT community now. And oh, of course, yeah. You yeah, never like that, threatened to beat yeah, that me, me, me threatening. You know, me saying I'm gonna beat him. It had nothing to do with him being gay. It was more like he's fucking weird. Like mm-hmm. I didn't know how to deal with this kid, and he would push all my buttons. And again, that had nothing to do with his like where his orientation. It had to do with him being just weirdo, mm-hmm. and I didn't know how to handle it. I was a twenty, you know, one year old exactly. kid at that time. Man, it's so ill-equipped. If there's anything, uh, the past few episodes have recorded, like, masturbation is such a huge issue in the missions. Like, Dude, it really causes I don't know a lot of problems. It's like not a liar that didn't jerk it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Everybody was giving it a tug, man. Who are you kidding? You have to, man. Um, yeah, because it's, it's such a crazy environment to be in. Um, but after all that happened, um, how long were you on your mission still? Um. That was, uh, I, I, I think that was on my second year. So I was, you know, on the, Almost done. on the downside. Yeah. Wow. That, that's a crazy story. I haven't heard anything like that uh, yeah. so far. I, I, I often think about that guy. I wonder what he's up to if he's still alive and yeah. what he's doing. Cause... Yeah. Hopefully he didn't go back to all that horrible abuse. Like that sounds just horrific. Yeah. But man, you know, and there were, there were, there were tender moments where I could see that like he had a sweet side to him. Like he mm-hmm. wasn't, he wasn't all weird. He, you know, there was a, there was a tenderness, you know, to his spirit, yeah. if you will, but yeah, a beautiful mess. Yeah. Man, that's a lot of, yeah, that's a lot of trauma to deal with. Um, so you mentioned that you met your first wife on the mission. Yeah. Um, you said you got married was six weeks after six you got weeks, back. Yeah. Um, yeah. so can you get into that a little bit? Um, which part? Um, I guess we're leading up into the excommunication rebaptism okay. phase of your story. Sure. So yeah, I mean, it was. I'm. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna just you know despair. It was. A, it was a horrible relationship. It had. It had good times. Like I said, we have two wonderful daughters from that relationship. Um, and obviously, I look back at it with a more critical eye than I did when I was in it. Mm-hmm. You know, because when I was in it, I wanted it to work, and I wanted you know, and I was in love, and, and there was a thing there, but after the fact I, you know, you see, you know, hindsight's always better than when you're in the middle of it. Um, I, I, I find it to be something that I have a, a very acute sort of urgency when it comes to seeing other people potentially jump into that, where I kind of have to speak up. Like when I see these young kids now, cause you know, the, the mission ages are lower now it's 18 mm-hmm. And, you know, I even have, you know, with my, my family now, my wife, I've been married now to, to my wife now for, you know, 15, 16 years. Um, you know, we have cousins and things that are, you know, on both sides that, you know, they got married, you know, within six months of their mission. And now they're 20, you know, two years old with a kid and another on the way. And, and then they're, I'm, I'm watching these, you know, young couples really ill-equipped with any you know, relationship tools to, to weather what it takes to create a successful marriage Mm -hmm. struggle. And I'm like, well, no shit, dude, you got married as a baby. Like you barely had your pubes and you're jumping into a relationship. Like, what are you doing? I don't under, that's one of the things that's interesting about, I, I, I feel all of that would be eliminated if there was a different stance about premarital sex. Mm -hmm. Like if these people could enjoy, you know, kicking the tires, so to speak, yeah, I don't know. Give them a two a, a two time trial that's <laughs> sin free. I don't know how you want to do it, but like make it so that you can get it wet and see if it's gonna work. Like a little rum spring. I've I've had friends as well that have gotten divorced and like yeah they they had no chemistry sexually and they had zero idea about it before they got married because they you know they didn't do anything. I mean they barely kissed. They were that strict as far as what they were doing. And you know like we had kind of allu- uh, alluded to earlier in our conversation that time of your life, your body is overrun with hormones, man. You're the, you're so horny at 21, 22 years old. And so I could, and I know this from personal experience, like you convince yourself of things that aren't true to be true for you to justify making a stupid move. Like if you were to, if you were to hand me at, you know, let's say even 18 years old, before I go on my mission, if you were to hand me a list of the things that I did, 
you're going to meet somebody here. You're going to get married at this time. You're going to do this. You know, this. I'd be like, no way, man. That's the dumbest move ever. Why would I ever do that? You think I'm stupid? Like I would think they were trying to punk me telling me I'm going to ruin my life by doing dumb shit. And it's like, but that happens all the time. And I, I really think that a lot of it has to do with it. Sex, man, like premarital sex. They, they're so committed to not do it. And then they, I mean, I mean, think about that. Think about if you do that and then you wait and then you have sex and it's horrible. She's a crappy lay. Like there's, there, you can't hold, like you can't laugh. Like it's just, there's nothing that's like, I want to do that again about it, which is a, which is a reality. Sometimes there's just no compatibility between people. And then you're like, I did all this for that. Like, it sucks. Yeah. You got to especially feel bad for the, the women in the church. For man. sure, dude. Oh, cause for sure. No, like no, talk about no confusing faction. Yeah. And, and that, oh, wow. Um, so you are the first person I talked to. I'm pretty sure that was excommunicated. Definitely okay. the first who came back. Um, so what okay. is that process? Like you don't have to get into any details. Well, like, I'm, a, to, I'm a full. But... So, so the, the, the truth is, is so when I got divorced, um, there was an overlap between when I was divorced and when I was with my, she's my wife now and we were having sex and that's not cool according to the church. And so, you know, I guess I was unfaithful as far mm -hmm. as it's on the, on the tail end. We were my, my wife at the time. And I, I mean, we were basically, you know, there was, there was n the only, the only part that is, that sucks is like my, my ex-wife was pregnant with my second daughter when all this was going down and then we break up and I was unfaithful. And, and of course that was the easiest thing to say, well, that's when you're done. Um, but it was, it was a weird thing. It's like on paper. Yeah. I, I cheated, but technically, um, you know, not to excuse anything of, as far as that's concerned though, like there was the relationship had reached a point to where there was no more relationship. And it was, it was so easy to, you know, I mean, I, I worked with the, like my, my wife now, like we were close work colleagues had been for years before this happened. We'd had a banter and an attraction there that was, you know, palpable, but yet we just had kept under control. And then when, you know, kind of the, the way that everything kind of shook out my wife and I, at the time, you know, it was her birthday. We went to Jackson hole. We had a big fight blow out there. And that was kind of the end for me. We're like, this is over. I can't, I can't deal with this. Even though she didn't see it as over with, like I, I was like, I'm out and she didn't know that. And it was this, but yeah, that was the, that was what got excommunicated. Cause we were trying to, I mean, we're kind of trying to work it out kind of not to, and I was, I was checked out and there was a, there was a moment where we, I came home from work and she accused me of you know, being unfaithful. And I just said, yeah, you're right. She's like, wait, what? And I go, yeah, you, you nailed it. And then that was the beginning of the end. You know, she just, you know, I was excommunicated probably three weeks later. She moved away. She was pregnant with my, my second daughter at the time. She moved back with her parents at where they were. And then I had to bring her, I had to try to get her back out here to have the baby here. And there was a bunch of legal stuff. And it just, it was, it was a really ugly, tumultuous separation and divorce. Um, but yeah, the ex it was August 22nd in 2004 when I was, when I was excommunicated. Yeah, and that's that's rough. Um, the excommunication process is bullshit. I'll just put it that way. Like, it was different. It's different now than it was back then. Like, I've I've had friends and friends of friends that have gone through it now, and it's completely different. Back then, the process was I, you know, would go to my bishop, you know, confess the sin. The bishop would then have to involve the stake president. I'd go visit the stake president, and then they would have a council, which would be basically 15 people, the high council and then the, the stake presidency. And you had to sit in front of all those men as they were asking you these horribly detailed questions about your sin and about what you were doing and what led up to it. And then, you know, at the end of it, they leave the room or you leave the room, and then they come out and they're coming back in. They tell you what their, you know, verdict is. And, uh, they, they, they try to preface it with this bullshit that says this is out of love. Mm. You're currently being judged by the Lord for the sins against the covenants that you've made. And by removing your members of the church, you're no longer held to the same standard. So you're not going to be judged as harsh by the Lord. And I'm like, that just sounds stupid. And then, so there was all that. And it was, it was a horribly emotional experience. Cause like I said, like I didn't do anything wrong at all. My entire childhood, no drugs, no nothing screwed around a little bit with my girlfriend where I had to wait to go on a mission and then come back again, live in a clean life. 
This is the first, I never drank. I hadn't had alcohol ever until that, up to this point. Like, I mean, I'd never done anything out of the lines. I was an honest person. And then I have the stuff with the wife and, and the soon to be wife and the, all that and excommunication. I'm like, I'm just like, this is, I don't like being on this side of the coin. Mm -hmm. And I still held with me a desire to like be a part of, you know, God's fold, so to speak. And so the guilt was ridiculous. And, you know, my, the woman that I ended up marrying, like bless her heart, like she had to put up with me being this mopey little bitch for a while about just, you know, wishing that I had, you know, cause I, I still wanted to go to church. It's so stupid. I still wanted to go to church. Like there was something to some void that was always there, but made bigger when I got excommunicated so that I, I just, I just thought that if I was to do that, that, you know, it would score points or whatever. Hmm. I did that for a while. And then went through the process to get rebaptized and even did that. And that, that soiled me as well. Well, let me go back up the day of my excommunication. I should have seen this as the foreshadowing as it was. They say that the whole process is, a, is an act of love, that it's based in love and there's nothing loving about it. It's punishment. It's degradation. They don't want you to feel good about yourself. They can say all the words that they want, but their energy and the way they look at you and they look at you as like this broken folded individual. Mm. And even to that point that the stake president came up to me afterwards and he was kind of like angry with me. He's like, I want you to know something. He's like, it's like, uh, he says, I have a daughter that's about the same age as your wife. And it reassures me to know that you're not going to be associated with the church anymore. Because if to consider that you could do to that, somebody could do to her, what you did to your wife disgusts me. So you're going to enjoy, enjoy your break away from the church. You need to really grow up and figure out, you know, what you're, what you really are. And I'm like, wow. Okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, the, the excommunication, it sucked. And then the process to get back in was even worse because I had this desire. And then when it, when I thought it was, you know, time to go back in, I go to talk to the Bishop and say, I think it's time. It's been a couple of years. My ex-wife had to be involved in the process because of what had happened. They had to basically get her opinion and her opinion had a lot of weight. And it's like, how is that the atonement? How is the, like this jaded, person that left me that legitimately hates me thinks I'm the most lowest person on the planet she gets a say in my spiritual like road to forgiveness like that sounds horrible like that sounds nonsensical I don't understand this but I put up with that and we went through it and it took tw it took twice it was like an eight-month process there was letters written there's all this stuff and I ended up getting rebaptized. and then it was about a year and a half that I ended up uh, taking to get my blessings restored but that year and a half was such an interesting year and a half I got into self-development at that time where I started reading these, you know, books about, you know, empowering your mind and mm -hmm. making decisions that, that put you in a position to succeed and, and being willing to let go of limiting beliefs about yourself and about what you're capable of and, and understanding your real connection to God, as opposed to these dogmatic religious ones that are pitched to you. And I read this book that transformed my life. It was called conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. Mm -hmm. It's one of the most amazing books. I recommend it to anybody, period, but especially to people that are struggling with their spirituality. Because the format of the book, it's, it's such a unique story. So this guy was in his late 50s when he wrote it. And he had this habit of like just kind of this exercise that whenever he was offended by somebody or something, he would take it to the pen. He would like write a letter to that person or that thing as a way to kind of exercise his own feelings about it. So if he got in a fight with his kid, he'd write a letter to his kid and then he'd just throw the letter away. It was just like this exercise, right? Well, he was homeless. He had a broken neck and he was sleeping in a tent in this park in Oregon. And he decided he wanted to write a letter to God. And he's like, you know, God, what, <laughs> what the fuck, man? Like I'm a good person. My kids hate me. I haven't succeeded in anything just going off. Right. And at the end of that letter, he felt inspiration come as a response. And so the entire book, it reads like a play where it's like, he's asking questions to God, God's responding. Mm -hmm. And it's a very spiritual book. Like I've, I've had just as many like enlightening sort of spiritual experiences reading that book as I have of any, you know, supposed sacred texts. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. But in that book, he talked about, you know, just understanding, you know, the nature of relationships, the nature of fear and how religion uses fear, that there's basically two thoughts that govern when you strip down underneath all the layers, there's two thoughts that you choose. One is fear and one is love. 
And every decision that you make when you strip it down is based in fear or love. Is it, you know, are you doing this because you're choosing to, because you love what the outcome could be, you love a thing, or are you scared or fearful of, you know, it's, it's, it's a very dynamic thing. And I started realizing that a lot of the stuff that I've been doing with the church and my desire to be reacquainted with the church was out of fear. I thought I was going to miss out that like I needed to play this little Rubik's cube of like finding out the perfect combo to find out what God wanted for me and go back into being, you know, a member again. And that that was going to make me happy. And so I was still going to the church at the same time. And even though I wasn't, I was baptized, but I didn't have my blessing store. And I started just, you know, being a little bit more forthright in, you know, like elders quorum, for example, asking questions. Like I remember, I remember one of the funniest experiences I had is like I was in the elders quorum and they were talking about, you know, chastity. And I just, I just had like no fucks to give at this point. I'm like, do you guys, are we going to sit around and actually talk about pornography? Or are we just going to pretend like none of us will watch it? Like for real, like this is the hospital, right? Let's talk about our infirmaries. Let's figure this out. Dude, they lost their shit. They're like, you can't No, this. We're not like they were in complete denial. And I'm like, okay, this is not my tribe. You know, these are not my people here. And so anyway, I'm, I'm dealing with a good Bishop and, and the, and the irony is that I, you know, drank alcohol for the first time during this time. I was kind of experimenting with some different things. I you know, tried weed, like all, and I'm being honest with my Bishop about this. I'm like, I still have a desire to, you know, get my garments back and be like, this is what I'm doing. And he's like, I don't really care. Like that stuff, like whatever, like it's, it's, and he's like, you're the type of person, Bryce, that if you can figure out how this works for you, you're going to be a lifer and it's going to be good for everybody. So I'm, you know, do what you need to. So I go, I can't even remember the general authority's name when it got arranged. I went downtown Salt Lake to, to meet with the general authority. You know, they put their hands on my head, bless me, give my blessings back. And I'm walking out of the building with my wife. And I'm like, that's it. Like, that's it. And I realized it was like all this kind of like full circle stuff started happening to me where I'm like, Oh, like all the things I've been reading in these books my experience, like one of the things in that book, Conversations with God, that he talks about that is really impactful. He says that most of us will give weight to, to the word of God, but we won't to the experience of God. When we've had spiritual connecting, bonding experiences, God-like spiritual experiences, doing things that the scriptures say would never provide that. And so we would discount that as a spiritual experience because the word of God said no. And he's like, no, 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 no. Like, let's, let's, let's readjust that hierarchy. Experience of God first. If the word of God tells you that you can't experience what you just experienced, ignore the word. And so I'm like, okay. So I got into this thing where I'm like, I'm going to, I'm actually going to start to pay attention to how that feels. So I, I gave myself a new rule. Like I'm going to go to church. And the second that I feel like they're switching into fear, I'm out. If it's love-based and it's community-based and it's about, you know, becoming better people, cool. If it's hellfire and brimstone, I'm out. Sometimes I'd make it three hours. Sometimes I was out before the sacrament hymn was over, dude. Like, it was like, I'm just done. And that was the start of kind of how I started separating myself from the church because I realized this is about control. This is about fear. There are some beautiful messages of love and growth within the scripture, within the hymns, within the teachings. You know, I, I, I love Jesus Christ as a figure. I think that that's a good, he's a good dude. I think that his message has been co-opted by people that don't really care about what he was about. And, uh, you know, so that kind of started. So like, as it stands right now, that's been, you know, 10, 12 years since that's happened. And I'm happy. I still consider myself a very spiritual person. I have no interest in actual dogmatic religion unless that's what a person needs. Sometimes people just need boundaries and they need to be told what to do to get their shit together. So if that's, you know, that works for you, cool, but I'm not going to force that on people. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your relationship with like your extended family like during this time? Because I know um, for a lot of people during these processes, they start losing relationships. Yeah. You know, your parents can turn on you when you're, especially if you're booted out of the church. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, no, my parents were, were cool. They pretty supportive? Like they, yeah. They, well, I have I have a unique relationship with my parents. My parents, it's and this is I say this respectfully because I don't want to like you know throw shade on them at all, but my, I'm more my parents' parents and they're my parents. Like we have a really kind of weird dynamic. Like they come to me for things where I don't, like, I don't have, like, even though, you know, for example, I love my father. He's an amazing man. He's 68 years old. Um, I don't have the type of relationship with my dad where if like I was really down in the dumps and like needing like financial help with a problem that I was dealing with or how to fix something that I would go to him just because he's, 
he's uh, his successes in life have been different than you know money and other things. He's an incredibly kind man. He's a good dude. Like I I love my dad. When I need you know help and forgiving people or seeing through noise or whatever, like he's the guy. But but it's it's just a different thing. And so um, you know they were they were kind to me the whole time. They didn't care. Like they weren't judgy about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they still aren't. You know they're they're two of my you know. Like we're close, they live, you know, 30 miles away. And uh there was there's no issue. The the issues that I had more relating to that weren't so much extended family, but like extended friendships. Mm-hmm. Like that that morning after I had, you know, acknowledged my impropriety with my wife at the time. She was on the phone with everybody in the ward telling them what I'd done. She'd called the bishop. She'd called the people that I was the scout master at the time. She'd called all those people, like the neighbors, like everybody knew. She was trying to like smear me, like, and it pushed me in a position to actually like retract out of all those friendships and actually pushed me further into the arms of my, my the woman I ended up marrying. Cause like I didn't have friends that I could go to. Everybody thought I was this horrible person at the time. And so that was. That was more, I mean, everybody, I'm sure that everybody that's on your show has has had those experiences where like, you know, the ward dynamic is fake as fuck, dude. Like there's so much, I mean, there might be actual generally good people and relationships in there. Like you might actually have like real friends there, but I've, I haven't seen very many of them. The real friendships that I still have out of those, those wards that I've been through in the past are people that have gone through their own stuff. Like one of my best friends right now is a guy that he got divorced, had an issue. Like he's, and he's, you know, struggled with his own testimony and stuff. It's like, and then he comes to me. Cause I'm like, I get it. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to say like, well, you got to pray more. And were you paying your tithing? Like, I'm not going to go down the checklist with him about what he should have been doing. I'm going to like hear him and let him feel like he's not alone. And then let him figure out his own life. I don't care what he does. Mm-hmm. So my extended family was cool. The, I had to, I had to make all new friends though. Cause those people sucked. They were judgmental for what had happened. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, same, like my mom was very supportive and cool when I told her, but man, I tried to approach some friends and I was like, I wanted to stay. I mean, I was like approaching people like, Hey, I'm having these doubts. I just really want to be able to talk it out. Like, you know, I really need just someone to listen, you know? Yeah. And without fail like if they weren't bursting into tears or you know what have you it was always a negative reaction isn't that a funny thing yeah to be so attached to another person's connection to a religion to have that be something that you Mm -hmm. use as a a reason to be close or not to be close like i I find that to be so odd yeah yeah it was was very rough you know because like whoa like i'm i I don't want to leave like i want to stay like you know i'm really like yeah. I have a lot of inner conflict and turmoil with this. Like, please just talk to me, listen to me, tell me something that'll help yeah. me. And none of them, nobody yeah. wanted to talk it out with me. Nobody wanted to, you know, help me out. So were, so were your issues like doctrinal issues where you started to see holes in the story? Um, at first I started to see some stuff, um, but mainly it was um, kind of like what you mentioned, like that's, that's it. Like, you know, you have this ordinance and like that, that's it. You know, my expectations weren't met. So, you know, when you get set apart as a missionary, it's this whole thing. Um, and then when yeah. you come home, it's just like, all right, take your tag off and be gone. And so yeah. I was walking, uh, you know, when I drove to my stake center um, to meet with the stake president, when I got home, you know, I had the radio off. You know, I was like, I'm still a missionary. I'm, I can't listen to any music. You know what I mean? I took the tag off, got back in my car. I was like, all right, let's turn on the radio. No guilt. But if I had listened to music, 40 minutes before I would have been just riddled with guilt. I would have felt so bad. And I just had to ask myself like, wow, like why don't I feel guilty? The only thing that changed was like some guy said some words, (laughs) you know what I mean? That's the only thing that changed this whole dynamic. And that was kind of like my first little shelf item, but I brushed it off. And then later it was kind of more of a, a doctrinal thing for me. Yeah. Yeah, see, fortunately, I, I feel lucky that I didn't go through a, an experience like that where, like, I had to, where I was really um, feeling duped. Because that's kind of like, that's, that seems to be a common theme. It's like the, the when, when individuals like yourself have those moments, it's like, it's like, oh, I got tricked. Mm-hmm. Like, this isn't what I thought. I was so racked in my own personal issues at the time that I didn't have, I didn't have the energy to focus on the duped part. I was trying to handle not, you know, I was trying to handle the barrage of fiery arrows that, you know, 
you know, people thinking I was this horribly, you know, corrupt, morally bankrupt person, which wasn't even remotely close. I just had made a couple of decisions that were bad and that was it. And even, even to this day, it's like, I recognize a part of my, you know, job and career over the years has been consulting and even coaching where I'll, I'll help people figure out certain aspects of their behavior to change bad habits and to overcome, you know, a certain way of doing things that isn't making them happy. And every single time, like, as you get into, you know, I jokingly say like when I screw your head off and I can rewire some of that stuff in your brain, I start to see that a lot of the crap that is causing the rewiring to need to be done comes from religious dogma. Mm -hmm. This, I mean, think about how unempowering the idea is that, yo, Devin, you're never going to be good enough until you get this spiritual spackle from Jesus. That's going to click over your cracks. Mm -hmm. Like it, it, it's almost like, you know, I see that in our culture right now, there's a lot of victimhood stuff where like people are talking about like systemic issues and things are like, I can't win. It's like, no, no, you can always win. We just are dealt different cards. Like our life, we have different hands. When you play Hold'em, your cards don't matter. What matters is how you play your hand, right? So it's like, I come from that school of thoughts. Like, well, okay, everybody's got different challenges. Fortunately, in the United States, you can overcome them if you want to. And the beliefs associated with that programming from early on are so deep-rooted and so hard. I mean, to, to get, I mean, think about the level of hypnosis that is required to get a young man of 18 to 19 years old to leave his family for two years, to go preach a gospel in a foreign place, sometimes having to learn a foreign language, living with strangers the entire time, being committed to long 18 hour days. I mean, the level of hypnosis, that's so crazy to think that they get you to do that. And they do, and they want, they, and you're wanting to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, like I'm going on, I got my call. Oh my God, I'm going to Brazil. Like people freak out about how great it is to do this year. Like you just, you're in a jail sentence for two years, Holmes. Like I'm, I'm, I'm in awe of it. Like I've, I've studied a lot of human behavior and what it takes to get people to take action. I'm a marketer by trade as well. It's like, so, so when I write copy or like create an advertisement or a post or something to try to get you to do something, I'm mindful of what I'm trying to do. And I'm like, dude, these larger organizations that, that can get mass movements, like it's, it's inspiring and crazily concerning at the same time. Mm-hmm. Wow. How do they do that? Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, especially if you get people to like, you control the underwear and stuff that they are wearing. Right. Like you, you really got them wrapped around your finger. Uh, yeah. And then, and then as kids, you try to find workarounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> dry humping is okay like it's just funny like <laughs> yeah yeah everybody you know well not everybody but yeah you it is surprising um how many people were living kind of double lives when once you're out for me at least i was like oh wow that whole time you were you were doing all these things i thought you were this yeah, perfect, I, perfect see, person because everything's I've so never, appearance I've, based and focused yeah i've 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 never cared so i've just i've lived openly mm. It's so it's even to this day, it's funny. Cause like when the missionaries or the, the ward come to the house, I love talking to them, man. Like I'll, I'll talk with them all the time. And then, you know, they'll be like, so you're going to come to church. I'm like, not a chance Holmes. Like, but Hey, you got a service project you need help with. Call me. I'm glad to, I'll donate to the friends of scouting. Like, even though it's not a thing anymore, like I, I'll whatever, like, I just don't want to go to your thing. Like, mm-hmm. but I'll support the community. Like that's community type stuff. I'm cool with that. And it confuses them so bad. It's like, wait, you said all the right things. You're supposed to, according to my little rule book here, when you get to question six, you're supposed to come to church and you're saying, no, I don't get it. Yeah. But it does. It's so much better to live authentic, authentically. Um, yeah. like as you say, you know, you're always been an authentic person. So, um, since all that has happened and since you've been fully outside of the church and free, like how's everything been for you? Um, good. I will say this though. I will say that, you know, I have children and the only temptation I've ever had to go back to church has been because of them mm. to like to have, to give them access to, you know, kids that are their same age and to give them, you know, things to work towards and, and, you know, the idea of primary and the young, you know, men and women's programs and things like, I recognize that my kids haven't had that and that there's something that's different about that. They also haven't had to deal with some of the crap that comes with it as well. So it's like a trade-off. Um, but, you know, life is, 
life is of my own making. Mm. You know, I, I recognize, uh, that, um, there's a lot of truth in the gospel and, uh, that truth, unfortunately is on the spiritual side of the law, as opposed to the letter. Mm. You know, like, for example, I fully believe in the idea of a law of health, you know, that you need to take care of your body and that your body is like, and I, I, I have a different viewpoint as far as the specifics of what that looks like. Like I find it hilarious that, you know, there's 300 pound people in the Mormon church that will shame you for drinking coffee. And I'm like, Hey, uh, you want to lay off the sugar and carbs there, homes? That's a bigger idea. You know, your heart attacks coming before mine, but at the same time, like, okay, that's there. So, so I, I like conceptually, like there's a health law, like I, the law of tithing. I love the idea of like being so unattached to your means that you would keep a portion of it in motion for goodwill. And that by giving, you know, 10%, if you will, to a cause that you believe in and being involved in what that cause is to better to, to, you know, help them achieve whatever the end of that cause is, whether it be a charity, whether it be a, you know, whatever. I love that. I I think that's great. You know, the, the idea of, uh, you know, the nuclear family is something that, you know, religion espouses that I think is powerful, which is, you know, a mother and a father leading a family. Like there's families are the foundation of society. And uh, not to say that everybody has to have one, but like, I, I love that religion, you know, helps to promulgate that. I know that a lot of the things about my career and, you know, station in life have been because I've had the safety and protection, both emotional and spiritual of, you know, a loving family. So that's a church thing too, you know? So um, conceptually, there's a lot of good there. And I've applied that stuff to my, to my life a lot because I think it works, but I just don't, I don't like the frame. Mm. I don't like the requirements. I don't like the, I don't like being forced to swallow the idea that like, the gospel's perfect, but men are imperfect and un- imperfect men. You know, sometimes you just got to like, I don't know. You know, tell me God can't figure that out. I'm like, come on. <laughs> right. No, that's very true. Um, and I mean, like what you really hit the nail on the head with the whole spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. Like, you know, that's how I was talking to a guy yesterday that came to fix something in my house and he started, you know, kind of talking to me about Christ and we got into this little religious uh, conversation and I told him about my background. He's like, yeah, you know, everyone around me, we've never considered Mormons to be Christians. Mm. And I, I got a little defensive. I was like, hey, I mean, we talked to Christ, we talked to Talmud, all that, you know, we, you know, yeah. we were Christian, one's a Christian. Um, but, you know, when you are focused more on the letter of the law and exactness and stuff, that really is uh, kind of antithetical to Christ's way. You know what I mean? Um, and we really all do got to kind of get back to that. You know, if you can find bits and pieces, I I do think that's good. I definitely still have some, uh, carryover, um, from my time in the church. Um, but I guess kind of in conclusion, like, is there anything I haven't asked that you'd like to speak on or any advice you would like to give to someone who might still be, you know, transitioning out of their faith? Sure. One of the, one of the most uh, impactful exercises that I did for myself, uh, is, is one I, I think it would be effective to pass along to your, your listeners here. Um, when, when you're heavily involved in the, any church, not just, you know, LDS church, but any church, you're given your beliefs. You're given a list of things that you, you know, like, for example, in Mormon is the articles of faith. Like, that's your list, you know? Whether or not you actually believe those things is irrelevant. Like, those are the things you're supposed to believe. And then when you get into the conversations, like, well, what if I don't believe this? they say, well, you know, you lack the faith to understand it. So just, you know, believe it and know that it's right because, you know, these old dudes said so. And, you know, f- just figure it out and it'll it'll come to you. And that really messes with a lot of people because what it does is it causes, it causes you to not know what your actual beliefs are. You can rattle off what you think you should believe. It's like, even when you go on a mission, they say, you know, do you believe in God, the father and in his son, Jesus Christ and the Holy ghost? Does any of them say no? Mm. When the reality is, is like, never met him. <laughs> like, I think maybe, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I feel good when I talk about this Jesus dude and he seems like a good guy. I mean, that's a more real answer, mm. but that you do that. Then they'd say, you're not ready. It's like, you're not sufficiently brainwashed to be able to say that, you know, do you believe that, you know, whoever the prophet is, is the you know true and living, whatever. It's like, I don't know. 
That's the real answer. Mm -hmm. Nobody can say yes, because they say the, the, the idea of like a, a confirmed testimony is legitimately just a sense, a, a level of delusion you're unwilling to acknowledge. You're so delusional, you believe it. Okay, so I had this moment, and this is a part of the whole kind of era when I was doing the, you know, reading conversations with God, and I had, had my blessings restored, and I was doing all this stuff. And I sat down and I, I, I made a list of what I actually believe. Like I went through line by line and thought, do I really believe this? Or do I just think I should believe it? Do I really believe, like I just you know, said to you, like, do I believe in the law of tithing? Yeah, but on this terms, on my terms, not these other terms. Do I believe in the word of wisdom, the law of chastity? Like, do I believe, like, well, do I believe, you know, if I jerk off, I'm going to go to hell? No, I don't believe that. But do I believe that, you know, fidelity and, and uh, monogamy is good and that it promotes, you know, um, commitment and safety? And like, yeah, I do believe that. And then on down the line, do I believe in God? Yeah, I do. Do I believe that Jesus Christ saved the world? I don't know. And just like being honest, like for the first time possibly ever, just being honest about what my beliefs were, it allowed me to have like a basis point of like, okay, well, this is where I'm starting from. These are my beliefs. And it made room for other things that I've believe that I've started to believe since then, you know, metaphysical truths, things like the law of attraction, things like, you know, the idea that your thoughts have an energetic power to help you to create things, what you focus on expands, like all these other sort of like woo woo, you know, it made room for it. And so my admonition to people is if you're struggling with your spirituality, it means you haven't, most likely it means that you haven't done the work to know what you actually believe. Because if you can sit and say, I don't buy that, it allows you to bypass entirely the war that happens with a lot of former members of the church where they go head to head with the church and they become like, like they, they want to, they want to battle it. Joseph Smith was a pedophile. Mm -hmm. Can't believe they do that to black people. Like nobody gives a shit at a certain point. Cause it's over and done with. Like you want to disempower the church, stop paying attention to them. Okay. So like, and that all starts internally where it's like, I, I, so that, that's how I'm able to say, like, I, I don't have any bad feelings towards the church. Cause I know what my beliefs are. Mm -hmm. They weren't spoon fed to me. I had to sift through them. And so for, for you, that's listening out there, if you're struggling, it's probably cause you haven't figured that out. What are your actual beliefs? Like really be honest, soul search with yourself, like pay attention to how you feel when you ask yourself those questions. Do I believe this and be able and willing to accept the answer? Like, no, I don't, or I, or I don't know. That's probably what most answers are going to be. I don't know. Okay. That's an honest answer. I have no clue. So there's a lot of freedom in, I don't know. It takes the pressure off of having to act like you do know. Yeah. yeah. And it's empowering. Okay. Yeah. I really like that. I mean, you've got me inspired. Like I want to go write down everything I believe in my life. Oh man, I need to, I need to figure myself out. I'd encourage out. you to do that, Dev. It's yeah. a big, it's a big deal, man. Like it was a, it was a pivotal moment for me to have that. Cause then I could, then I could see like, Oh, well this makes sense why I haven't achieved this thing in my life. Cause I was holding myself back because this other thing that I thought I believed, I don't really believe. And so I'm not going to, I would, here's an example. A lot of people, this is, a, this is a prime example. Do we have time to like, for yeah, me to show this? Okay. So this is a prime example. So a lot of people in the church, have equated their willingness or ability to make money as a sign of their righteousness. They're like, they've got to be doing the right thing for God to bless them financially. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So, um, but there's plenty of examples, even in the scriptures of freaking pricks making money left to their own devices, as it says in like the mm -hmm. book of Mormon and they made money. Okay. So if in life you found yourself in a position to have made money, a little bit in the, in the gray, you will judge yourself against that. And what will happen is you will end up losing that money. You won't be able to hold on to it because in our minds, we hold a hierarchy that we want to be a good person to us first. I got to see myself as a good person. Mm -hmm. And if I'm doing this thing that I legitimately and consciously have a connection to that says I'm a shitty person, I will change it. So that thing goes away. Now, does that mean money's bad? No. Does that even mean that if you were making money that wasn't like that you did anything wrong? Tech, I don't know. Probably not. It just fell outside of what your purview was for the, you know, the so-called best way to do it. And so by allowing that to be the case, like all of a sudden you start to free yourself up to live more freely. 
because then you're realizing like, of course I was sabotaging my money. I was not allowing myself to be blessed with that long-term because I was attaching that to thinking I was a bad dude. I'm not. And when you connect those things through your spirit and your mind and your heart, it goes away and you can laugh at it after the fact. And then you can see other people do, struggling through that and help them too. So like we always want to be seen as a good person, but we also recognize that it takes money and resource to do good things. So if, if the good, if, if the money and resource you're making doesn't make you feel like a good person, you'll end up losing it. There's like this weird nobility in poverty when there's actually no nobility in poverty. Being broke doesn't help anybody. And that's a big thing that church kind of does is they want you to think that like, oh, being rich is for somebody else. It's for that guy. I'll be poor here and be one of the, you know, Jesus take the wheel guys. Yeah. Wow, man. You, you said you're uh, you do motivational speaking. <laughs> yeah. By trade. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're cut out for it, man. Yeah, you definitely. <laughs> I like uh, I like your vibe. I like what you're saying. I'm feeling good. Um, and I think Dude, I, if, if you'll let me, I, I, uh, I got a podcast called rules of the rebellion that I want to kind of share with you. It's a, uh, please, I, I feel, uh, you know, in our day and age, it's kind of rebellious to be somebody that, you know, wants to take accountability for their own life and wants to do good things and wants to lead and, and be a badass. And it's kind of rebellious. And so I, I do this podcast. It's, it's a self-development type show. It's called rules of the rebellion where it's just, you know, you're a modern day rebel. If you're somebody that realizes that you can do it. Yeah. And so, um, we have a little community there and just trying to help people to be more wise about how uh, they, they do that and, and be willing to grab it. Like there's a, there's a concept called sovereignty that is a big a mantra of my show where it's like, we are all sovereign individuals, meaning we are accountable to ourselves and we are accountable to our results. If we don't achieve a result, it's because we didn't achieve the result. That's the only excuse. It's legitimate. And so understanding that we get to work through that. And so every episode I talk about something that's important to be able to, you know, get closer to having you be a fully empowered, maximized rebel. Yeah. It's called Rules of the Rebellion. Check it out. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I think that'll help uh, a lot of people. Yeah. So I'll definitely I'll link that uh, with the episode. Thanks, man. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you wanted to talk about or share? No, I appreciate that this, this came about pretty quickly. Uh, I love the idea of what you're doing here. And I'm, I'm, uh, I've subscribed to your show, so I'm going to, you know, follow along with what's going on. Some of these stories could be cool. Yeah. I'm curious to see kind of, because, you know, we didn't really bash the church today, but I'm curious to see, kind of see I'm sure there's some people you're interviewed that have some really, really difficult stories to share that, you know, or come yeah. with a little bit of uh, pain. So I'm, I'll be, I'll be listening. I like it. Yeah. yeah I appreciate Thanks for it. reaching out. Yeah. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Um, this will come out. I'll put this out Monday. And I'll send you the link, and uh, you know, I hope I'll you enjoy it. it. Yeah, awesome. Well, awesome. thank you again for coming on, and uh, don't be a stranger. I'll reach out to you soon. Absolutely, brother. All right. Take it easy, Bryce. Bye. Bye. Focal Point Podcast for the Focal Point Cinema and Sound Company.